say you braid runner. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dude. Dude. Is Dudeness Duder El Duderino? Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. More human than human is our motto. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. Welcome, everybody, to the Legion Dudes Presents the Blade Runner movie extravaganza. I'm your host, Russell Latham, and I'm joined always by my hosts in the Legion of Dudes. Tonight we have Mr. Adam Umack, Mr. Ken Morgan, and Mr. Johnny M. And we are going to be talking about um, not just Blade Runner, the movie itself, but the various releases. We'll talk about the book. We'll talk about other Philip K. Dick works that have been translated to film. But first, we're going to do a little bit of house cleaning. We just wanted to mention to everybody that the Legion of Dudes will be in effect at the Steel City Con coming up later this month, April 23rd through the 25th in Pittsburgh. Mr. Jim Dietz will be um, representing the Dudes. We'll be hosting a trivia contest. He'll be also hosting the Geek Throwdown on Friday night, so come check out his restaurant, Gypsy Cafe. He'll be glad to have everybody there. And also make sure you visit us on the website at www.legionofdudes.com and check out all of our news, features, updated podcasts, and we also have some audio blogs that we've been putting up as exclusive web content. So we've been going through Lost every week. We've got something on uh, Flash Rebirth. We talked about some video game stuff. We've got Left 4 Dead and Resident Evil 5 comparison. So definitely check those out. We also have a contest going on on the Flash audio blog, so give it a listen, and we're going to pick three comments at random and send those folks each a copy of Flash Rework number one. So please definitely check that out. You can send us an email at comments at legionofdudes.com, and then, like I said, again, the website, www.legionofdudes.com. All right, so I guess we'll start off our discussion tonight. Like I said, we're, tonight's going to be Blade Runner, and we're going to first start by talking about the novel, um, which the movie is based on. In case all of you don't know, Blade Runner is based off of the Philip K. Dick novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, published in 1968, and then it was later translated to film in, of course, the famous 1982 Ridley Scott Harrison Ford movie Blade Runner. But Philip K. Dick has also had several movies translated to film over the years, and a lot of it is, I think, has snuck under the radar. I think a lot of folks have seen these movies and not realize that they're based off of this wonderful science fiction author that did a lot of short story science fiction in the 60s and 70s. So I think, I think John, I think you've got a list of, of stuff to, to talk about and compare. Yeah, I have a uh, Wikipedia list of Philip K. Dick books that were translated into movies. Blade Runner, of course, in 1982. And you guys are going to have to excuse me. These aren't in chronological order. and My brain doesn't work that quickly. But uh, we also have Total Recall, which was based on We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven and starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, and Quato. And Minority Report in 2002. 
The short story was also known as Minority Report. That's actually a pretty underrated movie, in my opinion. Did any of you guys see Minority Report with uh, Tom Cruise? Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it, yeah. I, I think it's probably one of Tom Cruise's better performances and better movies, in my opinion. I, I know a lot of... There's, there's some Tom, folks that are down on Tom Cruise, but I really, really enjoyed uh, Minority Report. I hadn't seen it uh, at all for... Because I've heard so many mixed things on it. Some people say they, they liked it. Some people say they didn't like it. It's definitely been on my radar to radar to, to rent it or see it, but I just haven't never gotten around to it. What'd you think, Adam? Um, I really liked Minority Report. I thought it was um, a pretty good movie, and I'll even say this. I agree with Russ. It was a pretty good Tom Cruise movie, too. It was a good popcorn flick. <laughs> I remember uh, one line in the book where in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and then that crazy guy with like eyeballs at all like took off his glasses. That really freaked me. I enjoyed it. You know, it was it was a pretty good romp. I liked uh, Scanner Darkly a little bit better, though. Yeah, we have Scanner Darkly in 2006, which was kind of one of those new style animation. I think it's rotoscoping is called. Is that the, uh, they kind of do the animation over the actual video? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't a big fan of Scanner Darkly, actually. Uh, so we have Paycheck in 2003, which was directed by John Woo, and what did we miss? We have Next in 2007, starring Nicolas Cage, based on the short story The Golden Man. We have Confessions of a Crap Artist, which is a non-science fiction novel of Philip Dix that was uh, made into a movie as well. And Screamers in 1995, which is based on Second Variety. Um, And that starred Peter Weller, who we all know is also RoboCop. And did I miss any? Imposter. That's another one. Yes. Imposter. 1953. The story Imposter became a British television series for a while in 1962 and was also uh, made into a movie in 2002 starring Gary Sinise. Yeah, and that was actually pretty good. I don't know if you guys have seen Imposter, but it was Vincent D'Onofrio and Gary Sinise, and it was I enjoyed it a lot. It was really kind of quirky. Uh, had Mackay Pfeiffer in it too. It was it was one of those kind of mess with your mind movies, but it uh, I enjoyed it. It was you know real kind of again one of those under the radar things. Not a lot of people saw it, but I saw it after it came out on video, and I thought it was actually pretty good. So. What about his vision and, and his stories do you, do you think is so uh, attractive to Hollywood? I Tough question, just, huh? The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, the exploration of technology versus social issues versus kind of, you know, it kind of has also that environmental thing going for it. You know, what are we doing to the environment? Where is mankind going? What have we, you know, where, what have we become? All that kind of stuff. I have to add to it that I mean these original ideas and concepts for his books are so in some cases off the wall crazy and original that no Hollywood think tank could something that intricate. <laughs> I don't think with all the schlock that's out there right now. And from being a first time Blade Runner viewer this past week, when I watched it. Uh, I'm pretty convinced of that. And, and it's funny because a lot of I think I think the other thing is a lot of his books don't focus on the technology aspects of sci-fi. You know, you can you can almost take the the technology out of it and just you know kind of relate to stories about you know people and interactions and those kind of things. So it's it's there's a lot of uh, room to play. You know, because if you look at a lot of his stories, they're not direct translations from from film to to or from book to film. 
and Blade Runner being probably the most egregious of the uh, you know of the differences, maybe maybe Total Recall as well. I think a lot of the a lot of these stories, the, the future that were is shown is while very not I'm not gonna say negative, but certainly uh, less optimistic future than some other science fiction like say Star Trek would give you. The the future for them for the most part is is not that much different from what we're doing now or we what we were in 1982. Yes, no, we didn't have flying cars and no, we don't have you know artificial people. But the way people lived their lives, you know, the, the fast food vendors on the street right up to, uh, you know, the Coca-Cola sign up in the window. It's a future that, while, yes, it's clearly the future, it's something we can kind of get our head around still and can kind of see. Again, maybe we hope it's not going to come to that because, it's again, it's not very optimistic, but it's also not so far out there that we can't get our head around it. It's almost retro. You know, if you look at a lot of that stuff, it's kind of, you get futuristic elements and then you also get a lot of this, you know, kind of 50s noir-ish um, stuff going on. So while, you know... Some aspects of it are very futuristic. Other aspects of it are are not. And then you, Blade Runner is a perfect example of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to probably get into this, but I think I think it's it really is a noir story. I mean, you got the you you have the uh, the detective, you know, the kind of crass uh, detective. You have the femme fatale. You have the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They took it out of the director's cut uh, with the. Uh, Talking the over the the voiceover, right? It's right. very noir. You know, I, I think it has a lot of those elements straight through. The other thing about about the future, you mentioned, you know, retro. The other thing is, and this is looking at with my eyes of today. You know, it's always fun seeing these these older films, older twenty some years, but still that they were looking forward, imagine what the future would be like, and now here we are, basically there, and it's like, okay, you can imagine a flying car, but you can't imagine a cell phone. Yeah, like all the things they got, you know, completely, you know, were still still fantastical to us today. But all little things like we take for granted that you couldn't have imagined a cell phone back then. You've got to use this, you know, pay phone, video phone. Yes, granted, and we, we basically have those today. But uh, uh, I do the same thing with Star Trek or two thousand one. You see what the vision of the future could have was back in nineteen sixties compared to what it actually is. It's it's just an interesting comparison for me to make uh, with today's eyes. I mean, back in 1982, those 50s kind of sightings in that, you know, I could actually see people seeing that as as what the future could become one day. Uh, more of a retro thing, not, not a retro thing, but flashbacks to the past or the then present. You know, I always I always like finding make, making those comparisons uh, uh, are, are some of the, the most fun for me to do to try to you know figure out uh, where they went wrong or where they went right. Yeah, I, I agree. So to talk a little bit, how many of you guys, have you guys all read the, the book or the, the, I guess, story, I guess, kind of a short novel, I guess you'd call it. Have any of you guys read read it? Yeah, I have. No, unfortunately, I have not. I've, nope. I've read it as well. It's uh, it's very different than the, than the movie. There's a lot of, for one, Deckard is married. He has a wife in the movie, or I'm sorry, in the book. There's more replicants in the in the book than there is in the movie. They They spend a lot more time with them i mean there's the movie just makes it seem like okay there's these six replicants and they're you know they've escaped earth and that's where they are and then the book there's you know hundreds of them conceivably running around um unknowingly um, right the characters you know the names have all been changed around mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more emphasis on religious social themes in it um there's this whole theme that runs through it where they talk about having a a what they call it a mood box, you know, where, where people dial up their emotions to feel a certain way and, and, and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of weird. Which is the book It's pretty important, I think. 
for the way the book went about things, the mood box was kind of important because the, you know, the the kind of overlying theme being, you know, they're they're testing androids for empathy, but yet we have to dial up our own emotions. So who's really the unfeeling one, the human or the android? You know that the emotion right. box was kind of big in that whole theme, which the movie really steered away from. So it didn't take away from not having it in the movie, but in right. the book, it's like extremely important. Yeah, I mean, overall, the basic, you know, the basic premise is mostly intact. I mean, you know, they obviously they don't call him Blade Runner in the book. He's just a bounty hunter. You know, it's about a character named Deckard that, that is a bounty hunter. He goes after replicants. That's what he does. There's six of them that are that, that these models that escape. They they charge him to go after it. You know, he, he meets the, you know, the female, the, the, the Rachel model, um, you know, gets involved with her you know, and then starts re- retiring them all at once, uh, or starts retiring them. And and the replicant models are mostly, you know, now, well, not, like I said, not exactly the same, but personality characteristic-wise, they're they're pretty similar to their to their analogs in the movie. Um, and then, of course, what happens after. But um, that's that's kind of where the similar, you know, a lot of the similarities end. You know, the the well, the the world as well is is kind of the same. Where you know, there's obviously been a world war. There's you know, there's basically no daylight. Um, you know, everything's dreary and rainy. And they also, uh, in the book, really harp on the fact that there's a lot of artificial, like basically all the animal species are all dying off. And so there's a lot of, uh, basically what they turn to is replicating animals. So owning a, owning a real live animal is almost like a stat, like a symbol of status in the, in the, in the community. And it was interesting that they included the owl quickly in the movie. Um, because yeah. the owl is like real important in the book because the owl was apparently the first animal that was affected by the fallout. So like suddenly one day like people were waking up and there were just owls like dead on the ground because sometime during the night they, you know, were dying off. Um, so the owl is like the most rare of all of the authentic animals that could be around. So they kind of like give a nod to it in the movie. Again, it's a little more important in the book. Yeah, and then, you know, Deckard himself owns a, the, kind of where it comes from, an electric sheep. He owns um, a, a robotic sheep that he tries to pass off as a real sheep and has it grazing on his roof and all that to kind of, you know, keep kind of the keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing with it. But that's kind of where the, you know, where the similarities end. The, the you know, the book, I think, is a lot more concise and doesn't get involved in a lot of the other, you know, plots that, that go on in the in the book. So it's a lot, I mean, a lot, you know, some of the criticisms of the movie are that it kind of drug and that it was a little slow, but compared to the book, the movie is a lot faster paced than, than the book. At least that's, that's how I feel. I think as far as the pacing goes, um, when I was watching it this week, I really felt that it was an 80s movie, kind of slow, because if you look at other movies that are kind of like, I don't know, I wouldn't call it the suspense, but like if you look at, um, uh, what came out in 88, uh, the, the Vanishing, the Dutchman about, you know, um, this girl who mysteriously disappears. Probably one of the quietest movies I've ever seen, and I think that Blade Runner certainly has its uh, quiet moments, but I think that also kind of goes in tandem with, like, the league of movies that kind of surround it, like everything that David Lynch does, that kind of quiet uneasiness, because, you know, whether it's Gaff or Deckard or some of the other characters, it's almost like uh, there's this kind of, like, social awkwardness that they can't talk freely to one another, that there's kind of like a, I don't want to say names, but there's this disconnect that 
and I think in part that has to do with some of them being replicants that they have with each other. And I think it's it's a very quiet movie. I mean, you know, it has you know those punctuated moments of you know violence and stuff like that. I, I think it's like I said, it's got that '80s kind of quiet vibe to it. And I think you know a modern uh, American art album that was actually released, you know, on a mass scale. I mean, you look at that. You look at stuff like um, at Heart, uh, Mulholland Drive. Lost Highway, uh, a lot of the Jim Jarmusch stuff. Those are those definitely have that kind of uh, tone to it. Hey Adam, just so we know, what version did you watch? Uh, I watched the theatrical cut, just the straight up regular. Oh, okay. Straight That's up regular white bread. <laughs> That's interesting because um, the theatrical cut's actually a lot more noisy than the final cut because you're getting the voiceover. Right. Well, I I knew I knew from trying to make the director's cut at a friend's house a couple years back that they made changes to it, but I, I, I just, you know, we had <laughs> to play Resident Evil instead, so <laughs> um, we, we switched off to it, but I, I knew of the changes, and I, I knew of it, and what I kind of wanted to ask you guys is that, um, you know, doing the research about the movie this week and kind of, uh, well, keeping up with you guys, uh, it wasn't really well-received back in 82 when it came and I was wondering no, all. if... If you guys saw it say back when, and with all the different cuts, kind of like how his opinion of the movie changed. I originally saw it on cable when it first came on in the you know mid '80s, so it was probably '84, '85 when I first saw it. So I was still pretty young, and it was one of those. My folks were pretty strict about the whole R-rated thing, so it was one of those. You know, my dad was out one night or something, and I, I snuck and watched it basically. But it was one of those that had Harrison Ford in it. If it had Harrison Ford in it, had to watch it. You know, had Hans, had Han Solo, had Indiana Jones, had to see it. And I just, you know, I did, at, at 13, 12 years old, I didn't really know what to make of it. I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, the whole flying car and the robots and the and the violence and stuff. But you know, I totally didn't appreciate it um, at at any higher level than, than that um, and didn't remember too much of it but I went and saw it in 92 again when they re-released it theatrically for the director's cut and I remember it being a really big deal because they, they took out the voiceover which I thought was horrible well it, it did explain a couple things I mean there were some, some things that it elaborated on a little more with the voiceover about why things were the way they were and, and some of these people but I just found it very distracting. So when they streamlined it with the director's cut and took out the voiceover, I thought it was much better. The biggest improvement over the, with the director's cut is the, uh, is, is they took out the happy ending. So there's no, you know, in the, in the theatrical cut, him and Rachel drive off and, you know, basically drive off into the countryside and in the sunset. And you find out she has basically no termination date. She has an, un, you know, basically an unlimited lifespan. So however long she's supposed to live, that's how long she'll live. I like the director's cut where they're basically you get the impression they're on the run. You know, Gaff knows who you know who he is um, and what's going on and lets him go. But but in general, there's a sense that they're on the run. Then of course we have the final cut, which I think tweaks it just a little bit. Mainly the final, the big thing with the final cut is a lot of cleanup. They cleaned up the effects, they cleaned up the sound, they redid a couple of the effect shots. They brought Joanna Cassidy back. They brought in Ben Ford, uh, Harrison Ford's son, to resync the audio. If you if you watch either the theatrical cut or the director's cut or any other cut besides the final cut, when Deckard goes to see Abdul Ben Hassan, the the guy that made the snakes, their whole conversation is completely out of sync. 
you'll you'll see Harrison Ford's mouth move and he's not talking and you know vice versa. So the thing was way out of sync. So they brought in Ben Ford because Harrison wasn't either wasn't available or had no interest in it, and he re spoke the the entire dialogue and then recut it in. I don't mean, I mean um, to cut you off, but it's probably more likely that his son probably sounds more like Harrison did back in 1982. I'm going to guess now he probably couldn't mimic the same voice. It's probably just changed or gotten deeper or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's uncanny. I mean, if you listen to it in the movie, it, it, you can't tell the difference um, at all. And then the, the big thing is, the and this was a huge deal at the time, I remember, I mean, it, it, as far as movie gaffes and movie goofs, is when jo- when Joanna Cassidy's uh, character Zora is retired by Deckard, she crashes through a plate glass window, and because of concerns about safety and timing and everything else, they had to hurry it up. They used a stunt person that didn't have a good wig, and it really, really looked bad. I mean, when she crashes through that window, um, both windows and falls and twists and turns, it you can tell it's it's a model and it looks nothing like her, and that hair is awful. So they pulled Joanna Cassidy twenty some odd years later back and put put a wig on her that was life like put her on a green screen, tracked the shot and re recut it in and, and, and it looks ten times better than it did back then. So those are the you know, the big differences as far as the versions go. I personally find the final cut to be better for a lot of reasons. The the A the, the picture quality and the sound are just bar none, ten times better than they were on either of the, of the other ones. And I just, I've seen every cut there is. I've got the five edition Blu-ray set. And I've, I've over the past weekend to get ready for the show, I watched both the theatrical and the final, one, you know, one day apart. And it, it's it's like night and day, the clarity and the quality between the two, even on Blu-ray, you can definitely tell a difference. So is there any ambiguity in your mind as to if Deckard is a replicant or not? That's the one Anybody? thing I was. That's one thing I was going to bring up because that's a big thing in the book, and I was really expecting to then to put more of a more of a point on that with the director's cut of the final cut, and I didn't get that. I was actually probably the one thing I was disappointed with. I did not see them change or do anything in any way to make me wonder whether or not Decker is a replicant. There's one line in both versions. Um, about have you ever taken this test yourself? But beyond that, I didn't see anything. Anybody else want to say anything different? There's a there's a few things. I'll just kind of jump in. One, if you the the biggest the biggest um, a to answer your question, there's no my there's no doubt in my mind that Deckard is a replicant. The clues to that are if you if you watch the the movie when Rachel hands Deckard the photo of her as a child, it's it's the view of a front porch and there's a woman with a little girl sitting on a front porch with the two columns and the screen door in the background. When you look at Deckard playing the piano, on his piano, there's a picture of him and his wife standing next to each other on that same exact porch with that same exact house, framed exactly the same way, sitting, sitting on his piano. Missed that up. Yep. Um, two, two whenever, you, whenever you see a replicant, when the light shines on their eyes, whether it's in you know, the owl, um, Roy Batty, Chris... I don't think you saw it with Zora, but you definitely see it with Rachel. Their eyes almost have like a glow, like a, like an orangey, reddy, reddish kind of glow to them. And the humans don't. And there's a scene right at, I, I think I wrote it down as to timing-wise where it was. It's like right at the, the one-hour mark. Um, yeah, right at one of five on the, I think it's on both cuts, because I think it's in, in both, where he passes by Rachel, turns around, looks at the camera, and his eyes have that exact glow pattern 
just like they do on the replicants. And like I said, you don't see that on any of the other human um, characters. And then, of course, and if you've seen the director's cut of the final cut, the unicorn dream that he has, and then Gaff shows up at the end and puts the little unicorn origami that basically, I took it as he knows what memories were implanted into Deckard's head, and that unicorn was his little I-know-who-you-are kind of kind of nod to him. So that and the, the fact that when I was at Comic-Con 07, I sat on the, the panel with Ridley Scott and some of the actors and everything, and somebody asked the question in the, in the audience, is Deckard a replicant? And Ridley Scott himself said, yes, he is. So, Yeah, I'm with you. I think all of the uh, all of those clues you mentioned and what really sealed it for me, I noticed the picture like after the fact, but originally what sealed it for me was the unicorn. Because, you know, they go and show you so specifically that Deckard knows Rachel's memory implants. So then it kind of implies that Gaff knows Deckard's um uh, memories as well by leaving the origami all things, um, one all thing i wanted missed. yeah uh one of the things i wanted to mention um i did hate the original because of the voiceover and i didn't get it I, I didn't get it as a teenager that it was supposed to be like a nod to noir and those were the things i kind of didn't like ab- about the film but one thing about the voiceover is it, it's pretty much implied that harrison ford tanked it on purpose the story goes that Hollywood wanted the voiceover in to explain what the heck was going on in the movie because, you know, the audience is full of dummies and would have no idea what was going on. So they, they invented this voiceover to kind of explain the, the movie as it went along. And Harrison Ford was completely against it. And, you know, of course, he was contracted and he had to do what they asked. And um, he's pretty much said... He's put it that, well, they didn't show it to me ahead of time, and so how could I possibly read it well? But it's been, it's been pretty, um, you know, it's, he's insinuated that he tanked it purposely, hoping that they wouldn't use it. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the things we'll talk about after the movie discussion is the documentary Dangerous Days, and um, we'll, we'll, get it, we'll get into a lot of that as well, because there's some really um, interesting stuff. I think through the magic of the Internet and technology in general, we have... Um, another dude joining us. I think Mr. Jim Dietz has um, has joined the line. So, what say you, Mr. Mr. Jim? Hey, I'm more human than human. I'm reporting from the gypsy uh, kitchen, so I hope my sound is okay. I have to agree with what Sean was just saying about the, the voiceover being really annoying. I remember seeing this in the theater when it came out. And I'm like, oh wow! And just the look of it, first of all, was great. It really took that idea of Star Wars, like the lived-in sci-fi look to the ultimate extreme, you know, this dystopian L.A., and, you know, we hadn't really seen a lot of that. It hadn't become the cliché that it ended up becoming over the 80s yet. It was still brand new. And then the voiceover started, and I'm like, why are they explaining all this to me? I mean, I didn't see this from what's going on, you know. And it was two years later when the final cut, when that was taken out, that it flowed, you know, a lot better for me. But I totally agree with John on that one. It really took me out of the... I mean, so to see that movie on a big screen is so... Pulls you in. I mean, in the early '80s, especially really good special effects. And <laughs> I know it's hard to believe now, you know, looking at the theatrical version or whatever. But um, and that that voiceover really kind of t- took me out of the story. I didn't. It felt like you know you were spoon feeding me the movie. I didn't need the extra voice to tell me what was going on. You know, I could see what was going on for myself. One of the things that like I I agree with the voiceover being uh, distracting in that it was helpful to me because there was little little things about it that it explained like 
you know, the fact that Deckard did understand that language and, you know, that, that, that Gar was, or Gaff was speaking. Uh, just little things about it, but you're right, it wasn't necessary by any means for it to be there. Uh, one of the changes I, I certainly did like was uh, they cut short the scene in uh, Bryant's office. You know, because I'm watching it on the uh, the original version, and when I'm watching it again, I'm reminded of this. I'm like, wait, did he just explain the deal with the replicants twice? You know, and give us the same information twice for absolutely no reason? Talked about the, the revolt and how they escaped, etc. So it was it was nice to... Uh, it was a good cut, good clean cut um, in that scene, and get us right back to uh, learning about the, re- the replicants and watching the video, of the original interview. And uh, did they did they deliberately uh, find somebody who looks almost exactly like a younger Harrison Ford to play Holden? Because I'm watching, it, I'm like, I don't remember Harrison Ford being this young. Because it's been so long since I've seen it, I I, I could, didn't remember that opening scene. And uh, I'm looking yeah. at Holden, I'm like, wow, he really looks like Harrison Ford. Kind of, sort of. If you watch the documentary, one of the things they talk about is um, I. I forget the the actor's name. Um, Paul, Paul. Some, yeah. yeah, Morgan Morgan Paul. Morgan Paul, um, and he did he did an awesome job as uh, Holden, by the way. But he was brought in because they did such elaborate screen tests for, especially the women, for Rachel, for Pris. Um, not so much for Zora, but mainly Rachel and Pris. They did really extended um, screen tests. And so to not have Harrison tied up or, or maybe he wasn't available or whatever, they brought in, they, they brought in Morgan and Paul to, to play the Harrison Ford part to play off of the actresses to find out um, who they were going to pick. Oh, okay. And, and then when it was all done, they were like, they, they were so impressed with the job he did, they had this character Holden on cast, so they pretty much said, you know, you got the part, and, and that's how that was done. Yeah, and I guess there was a lot more to that... Um to Holden's character, like there were scenes in the uh, in the hospital with him, like he didn't flat out die in that initial scene. There were some other scenes with him that were shot, but didn't make it into any of the versions. I don't think, and uh, I would like to have, well, like, would have liked to have seen those. I guess they added more to the overall story in some way. Yeah, he, it was kind of funky looking too. I've seen those, you know, the deleted scenes outtakes, and when um, Decker goes to visit him in the hospital, he's kind of in that weird, almost iron lung kind of thing. Um, since we started talking about casting, what did you guys, I mean, if we run down the casting, what did you guys think about, you know, the way the movie was casted, um, you know, from 2009 standards? I have no complaints. I thought um, uh, Roy Batty was at um, Rutger Hauer. I thought that was excellent. I mean, I thought he did a great job. And Rachel was perfect. You know, if they really went to the letter of the book there in in her description, I, I thought that worked out really pretty well. I guess I don't have any complaints. I really liked um, Sanderson, uh, J. S. Sebastian. Uh, William Sanderson yeah. played him. Uh, played Sebastian, and he he what really a great played. Actor. Oh, he is a great actor, and I've, I've I've only seen him in a few things, but everything every time I see him, he's he just nails it. And uh, this this was a, a, a great role for him, and uh, I completely forgot that he was playing basically a twenty five year old who was you know advanced age. I don't know how he was, how old he was there. But the last time I've seen him, most recently was of course on on Lost. If you'd seen a, seen a, one of the last two weeks episodes or so, I think probably his best role was played in HBO's Deadwood as um, the Hotel of uh, the Grand Hotel. It was uh, such an amazing part. It was like. Uh, Sanderson had this uh, character who was completely on the take running this hotel in this, you know, uh, western town in 
uh, the blacks, and uh, it was this weird, like Charles Dickens, um, crazy monologues that that he executed. Well. And once the writers really saw, I mean, obviously, Central Castle, uh, you know how good he was, but um, they really curtailed uh, these really dramatic monologues to say interacting ability, and it was uh, phenomenal. When I saw him pop up on Lost Ken, I was just like, vindication! What a great actor. One of the, it's funny, one of the things they talk about with uh, casting Joanna Cassidy as Zora is um, when, when they talk about it in the documentary, she said, well, they had to cast me. I, was, I had the snake. So apparently she had this big boa constrictor that was hers, and she owned it. Um, so she, apparently she got the part pretty easy. Nice. And apparently Ridley cast uh, Rutger sight unseen. I mean, just like no interview, no, no, um, you know, no cat, no... Uh, sessions no nothing he just he saw him in a couple things did word of mouth and just that was it Done. hey did he um i'm just kind of remembering the two cuts now did he poke the guy's eyes out in the theatrical or only the final he poked the eyes out in every cut except the theatrical in the in the inter- international he did it they, they put it in there that was the, the the difference between the original theatrical and the international was some of the violence and the two bits of violence that were different were one was the him poking the eyes out, and the other one was when Deckard was fighting Chris, and she, you know, kind of grabbed him, you know, by his nose, and you know, pulled him up, pulled him up by his nose, um, and some of that that stuff was cut as well. But the only disappointment, and not in his acting, it was more because I didn't see enough of him. Was uh, was Gaff was Edward James Olmos when he was on screen? I loved him, but. I wanted more of him. Of course, that's as much because of everything I've seen him over the years as anything as anything else. Yeah, I mean, the, the, he was kind of a he was really playing up that role. I mean, he invented that whole street language mm-hmm. when he got the role. That he insisted on coming up with that whole lingo um, and creating language, and went to some language class, and he just went like the whole you know the full nine yards to to do that role. And that uh, that pimp suit and pimp cane was you know that just put it over the top. I'd like to give it up to my favorite actors in the movie. Brian James is the who gives up like the best line, I think, one of the best lines in the movie, you know, time to die. The eyes just work over uh, Harrison Ford. Wake yeah, up. Wake it's up. It's time to die. Yeah, at the very beginning of the movie, too, when he's taking the test, he's all twitchy and just very, you know, very, I mean, he looks like he's going to explode in the moment that he dies, you know. But Brian James is like known for that kind of role. And then also uh, Joe Turkel, who played uh, Tyrell. And uh, Blade Runner was also uh, Lloyd the bartender in uh, Kubrick's The Shining. He was the one pouring uh, Jack Nicholson his imaginary drinks. So uh, yeah. he looks almost like you know, an insect, like kind of an evil insect in this movie. In accordance to all the other casting you guys mentioned, especially, like you said, Sean Young's Rachel. It's a letter of the book for sure. So do you guys think that um, Edward James almost using the term skin jobs in Galactica, you think that was like a direct nod to Blade Runner? Oh, it, oh yeah! I'm just, I I'm just glad he didn't make everybody take the AP calculus like he didn't stand and deliver. Because <laughs> uh, I think um, when uh, whenever you're in, um, whenever you have your first year of teaching, everybody, uh, every principal ever encountered, pretty much makes you watch uh, stand and deliver when he plays Jaime Escalante. <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm not too good with the numbers, so I'm just glad that didn't happen. But uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's that's clearly a nod to. Uh to this and I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that that he either he brought to it or probably the writer producers you know knew to make that connection with him oh yeah 
and and that kind of you know brings up an, an another point too of of kind of not you know it's funny there's it seems like nowadays you watch so many movies or you see TV shows or things like that and you you kind of you can kind of pin it back to nods to Blade Runner. It's you know for a movie that wasn't a blockbuster, yeah, you know, I think the budget was somewhere around twenty twenty five mil, and I think cumulatively cumulatively over the years the box office receipts have been around 32. I think originally when it was released, it was like 27. I know it's made a, probably a killing on video and, and DVD and, and every other sale, but you know, it didn't blow away the box office um, when it was released, but there's been so many things that have, you know, taken from it um, and copied from it a lot, especially in the later part of the eighties. You know, it seemed like every, you know, B grade sci-fi movie was, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, kind of that quirky, you know, music that played in the background, you know, a, a lot of nods to, to, to Blade Runner. You watch a lot of movies nowadays and you're like, oh, that's a Blade Runner, you know, moment. I see a lot of even like Tim Burton, you know, especially like when you look at stuff like Batman, you know, where it's the kind of the grim and gritty and, you know, very gothic looking, looking setting. Um, even in Watchmen, um, to me, when, when Rorschach was walking down the streets, um, with all the prostitutes and stuff, and they kind of played that that jazzy kind of music in the background. It reminded me a lot of like a you know some of the Vangelis stuff from from Blade Runner and the whole rainy, dark, you know, dirty street, you know, kind of undesirables walking around. I I, I totally got that as a nod to Blade Runner as well. Well, yeah, also, I mean, even the airships and the spotlights and the airships and uh, you know Big Brother's watching kind of feel. I mean, I think I think that's common in both of them too. And if you look at um, Ep One, The Phantom Menace, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that. But uh, um, they also have the um, three spinners um, um, hovering around on one of the Coruscant scenes, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that whole concept was was just really cool. The whole you know thing with the spinners, you know the the flying cars that you know they, but didn't look like just you know it didn't look like they just took a car and. You just stuck wings on it or stuck an engine on it or whatever. You know, they they were just those police cars. The spinners were just very unique, design-wise, and the way they just kind of fluttered around and you know took off. What did you guys think of the soundtrack? I mean, speak to you know, kind of touching on that a little bit. Um, hmm. I guess I don't. I guess I don't notice it too much. I, I guess that means that it blends in well. You know, it's not a distraction. I didn't. I wasn't blown away by it or anything. But uh, I, mean, I think it fits the uh, fit the atmosphere trying to be created. I also didn't. I didn't hear anything that was extraordinary or st- stood apart from any other film of this type or genre of of the '80s either. So any other kind of you know futurist futuristic type of uh, of movie. Yeah, I guess for me it seemed to to kind of stand out because. You know, in the age of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and you know the kind of the whole you know John Williams trend that started to kind of go through movies. Here we had kind of this sci-fi type movie that didn't have the you know pure orchestral type of soundtrack. It was more you know kind of pop, you know modernistic um, you know type type of sound to it. So I thought, to me, it always it always kind of stood out. The movie's been described as uh, neo noir, and right around you know the time when it was released, what's happening in music, it was um, you know new wave. And what I'd also add to it is I wouldn't I wouldn't draw like a direct parallel to like uh, you know Brian Emo, uh, Brian Emo, Brian Eno, and uh, you know the whole ambient movement in music. But um, I I think you know, like the synths and stuff certainly kind of play to that a little bit at least. 
Yeah, I think it, besides the soundtrack, I think that's a good point. I think it's really tuned into what was kind of going on in the, you know, in that time period. And I think part of his science fiction style is to play on like fears and, uh, you know, of current events and things like a, a big thing in the mid eighties was, you know, the, the, uh, the Japanese have passed us, you know, and, and if you notice the whole setting down on the street is like, you know, all of the writing on the signs is, is, is Japanese or Asian and all the food and the culture. It's like almost like they took us over. Yeah. You know, when we talk about, you know, things that came from it, I wonder if, you know, Joss Whedon was kind of inspired that way with Firefly because the same kind of thing. And, you know, in the future, there's like this fusion of, you know, Chinese American culture where, you know, it's permeated in the language and the culture and, and what people do. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, again, absolutely you know, was. it's all over in Blade Runner. And Joss Whedon, uh, incidentally, also set a, a very... Um, a very similar world in Frey. Did you guys ever read Frey? It's like the futuristic vampire yep. slayer. Um, yep. You know, there's flying cars in there, and there's like a very similar type of futuristic world. Absolutely. One of the other things that was interesting about the, the movie is that he goes, you know, originally they talked, there were six replicants that escaped Mars. There were three, three females and three males, and they explained that one of them... One of them was caught up in some sort of electrical accident or something like that and was, was killed, one of the males. And that we had Zora, we had Pris, we had Leon, and we had Roy, but the other one just, like, totally fell off the radar. Like, even in the end, he said, oh, he's got, he's got you know, three to retire, and, you know, the gap tells him four, and the fourth was Rachel, but this whole other replicant that went off somewhere, just, like, they just totally forgot in about which, it. In which version? Think. In all of them. I, I, I remember, maybe I mis- misheard it, but I remember it was two that got caught up in the electrical fence or whatever it was. I thought he said two of them did. No, he said one of them. Maybe it's a discrepancy. Well, I know in the final cut for sure he says. Um, that's the one I, I, one I, I, that's the one I heard it on. That was the final cut. I'm, really? I thought, or maybe I heard it, expected here because I knew there was me four. But I thought he said two were killed you know, when they're trying to break into Tyrell. And I think it was one, and the other. I think he says the other got away. I'm no, almost, I thought it was again. I thought it was two, and the other four got away. Well, maybe, maybe. I don't have it in front of me to look it up, so we'll just leave it at that. And someone will post we will our. We agree to post disagree. <laughs> well, the one the one who says that is usually the one who's wrong. <laughs> the other thing that they they talk a lot about more in the book is how most of the people have emigrated off world, and they kind of make. They kind of talk about, they show that in the movie a little bit. You get that, that kind of that blimp floating around that says, you know, start a new life off world. And you kind of get that in the background all the time. And in the, in the book, they really talk about how after World War Terminus, which was the kind of the great nuclear war that shrouded the earth in, you know, in dust and darkness so that, you know, the only way you're going to see sunlight is if you, you know, basically live on the, you know, among the tallest towers, among the richest of the rich and, you know, the poor live below in darkness pretty much all the time in acid rain. Is that living off? You know, most people live off world, and then even J.F. Sebastian, you know, talks about it. While he didn't qualify to be able to to live off world, so basically, if you're kind of undesirable, you were left on the planet, and you know, those that were deemed worthy were were allowed to to leave and colonize throughout the the rest of the solar system. And you know, Brian even emphasizes that when when Deckard's in there and he doesn't want to come back, he tells him, you know, basically, if you're not a cop, you're little people. You know, you're 
you're nobody if you're not somebody, you know, in, in the government or in authority or in power. Chicken heads. Chicken heads, yes. I just always thought that was kind of eerie. You know, that when you're watching that movie and you see, like, these big, you know, huge, I mean, you're, you're seeing the whole side of a building that's basically a jumbotron of this, you know, Japanese lady in the kimono that's, you know, saying stuff, and you get this, you know, blimp flying overhead, and you get all this, you know, all this neon and advertisement and all that stuff. It always seemed kind of eerie to me, the way it was set. And it was such a stark contrast, because you had all of that, like, new futuristic stuff going on, but yet down on the ground, you had those buildings that were, like, totally destroyed and abandoned. Plus, look. Like the street vendors, the noodle shop, it was very like like everything <laughs> above eye level was fantabulous, but everything on the street view was, I mean, really, really crummy. Yeah, yeah. Russ, doesn't that kind of fit? Because that that fits kind of like the corporate image of of the Tyro corporate Tyro operation. Absolutely. Because, you know, because he can you know uh, alter more or less you know the sun in his office, which is kind of like the whole uh, godhood thing, and plus creating man and, and the whole Frankenstein tangent, too. So it's like you have, like, the underdwellers, the grim and gritty stuff, and then you have, you know, who lives in the clouds. So in, in this case, it's, it's the corporation. And, yeah. and even, to, even to build on that, you know, the, the Tyrell building is in what shape? You know, it's a pyramid. So... The further up you go the food chain, you know, the less of the more important people there are as it comes to a peak. And, you know, at the bottom is sort of like the mass of humanity. And as you go up the pyramid, it gets smaller and smaller. And then at the top are the, you know, elite. And it's, it's kind of funny. Originally, they showed in the, in the documentary. I'll, I'll keep, keep coming back to the documentary, it seems. But originally, the, what they had planned was when Batty kills Tyrell, he's killing a replicant. And basically, Tyrell made a replicant of himself, and he's up in a rejuvenation chamber at the very, very peak of the of the pyramid, and Batty basically goes up there to discover this huge, elaborate sarcophagus with his maker, you know, really in there, that he was, you know, trying to escape death by, you know, putting his consciousness in one of his own creations, and to either prolong his life or or if he I can't remember if he'd been too too far gone at that point if that was the betrayal but that was originally what he was supposed to be doing was after he killed you know the the the, the replicant Tyrell and then JF Sebastian he went up to the top but they they kind of got behind schedule and over budget and all that good stuff and and ditched that idea but again it makes it an even more interesting concept where the guy comes to meet his maker and you know ends up meeting one of his own and I love that exchange that, you know, Batty had with Tyrell up at, you know, when he, when he, when him and Sebastian go up there, um, to talk to him where he, you know, Tyrell gives him that speech of, you know, the flame that burns twice as bright or the, the flame that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. And he goes, you have burned so very, very brightly, you know, basically giving him a heads up that, you know, you're, you're, you're probably going to die quicker than your four year lifespan is, is set for. And, and it's, I thought it was awesome that, he basically said, there's nothing I can do for you. You know, it's, it's inherent in your design and the way we made you that you have this four-year lifespan. There's nothing, there's nothing I can do to reverse it. We've tried everything. You know, basically, they did this all on purpose to make sure that, that they couldn't be expanded 
past their their whatever they were genetically programmed to have as a as a lifespan. Right. Now that's something so, new that was that was new to the next six miles. I took it because um, if Decker's been hunting them as long as he says he has been, that sound that seemed to be new information that was given to him by uh, by his captain uh, that they had this four lifespan. Okay, so that's not something new to, to the the Nexus six line. Uh, I agree. Yeah, that's that was my interpretation as well. So if Deckard's a replicant, does he have a personal time clock too? Well, I think if Deckard's been hunting uh, replicants for some time now, unless that's a memory given him, he was probably created before that time clock or he's from a different line or in some way just doesn't have either. I would say he doesn't have a time clock either, just like like Rachel does not. And that, you know, and that brings up an interesting distinction between the theatrical cut and the final cut, because if you go strictly by the final cut, you don't know Rachel has that four-year lifespan because that was a part of the narration of the theatrical cut. When you get to the director's cut or the final cut, since that's not there, if the only cut you've ever seen is the final cut or the director's cut, mm-hmm. then you assume that she's got the four-year span just like you know everybody else does. Right, yeah. You assume, you, assume, you assume that she does or could, but again, that's part of leaving to the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of an interesting... I think that's what makes the ending so interesting is you're left to just think, okay, well, you know, maybe they go on and, you know, live a long, long time or, you know, maybe they go out and six months later they're both, you know, killed over in a cabin. Somewhere. Yeah, or maybe they're both being hunted. Like, you know, maybe Gaff is saying, hey, I'm letting you go now. Basically, you've got a head start, but I've got to come for you eventually because she, she's a replicant or you both are. And so I've got to come get you. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what he meant by his last parting words of, uh, She's going to die, but then again, everybody does. Then again, who doesn't? I love that line. I just love it when he, yeah, he goes, he goes, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Who does, right. And so, yeah. uh, you know, that can mean any number of things. And it was, it was so poignant, too, because for the whole movie, he's either speaking in phrases and strange languages and, or doesn't say anything at all. And then at the very, very end, he tells him, you know, you've done a man's work, son, or, you know, whatever, and then... You know, he he kind of has this full English, you know, set of lines at the very end of the movie to just kind of set it all off right then and there. So, what do you guys what do you guys think of the ending? I thought I thought it was very interesting that, you know, the way he you know when he gets to Sebastian's place and he has that encounter with you know Daryl Hannah's character Chris and pretty violent. I mean, the way that they they get into the fight and then you know she grabs him and then he shoots her and she starts flopping around all uncontrollably and he shoots her again and then him and batty chase each other around and it's it's so you know he breaks his fingers and they go through this whole cat and mouse and he's howling and this fierce you know very physical chase and then at the very end he just lets him go saves his life did they ever tell us when what Rucker Hodgman, Roy, Beatty, Batty, what his uh, inception date was, his incept date. Because we know Leon's was 2017. We're set in 2019. So in theory, Leon still had two more years on him. But Roy basically expired right there in front of us. So do we know that he was in 2015? Or was that ever said to us? Or is that just our assumption? No, his inception was 2016. So he did he die early before the four years was up? That's what I think, because I think it accentuates, again, Terrell's statement of the, you know, the, the flame that burns twice as bright burns half and as long. And you, you burn so very brightly, that's right. Yeah, so basically, because of the mayhem and the murder and the killing and the you know, running and everything else he's done, and you know, basically he's, you know, he's burned himself out. But the way, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the book, the way they kind of explain the lifespan of the models is a little more 
um, less technologically based but more organic. And the way they put it in the book is they the the replicants don't have the ability to regenerate their cells. So as their cells start dying off, that's that's what kills them, as opposed to it being programmed genetically. So I wonder if you know, kind of a, you know, in the movie, it's kind of a dual thing. You know, a they've got this program lifespan, but you know, if they you know basically burn out their power supply, you know, by turning up the the radio to twelve instead of five, you know, it's going their batteries are gonna gonna yeah, it's it's not really so, um, explicitly said, but given their conversation about going through genetics, it does seem to support that it is a genetic issue, you know, on a, on a biological level and not on a programming issue. Right. Yeah. Well, they program the biology to work that way. Yeah. Yeah, the book. I'm not sure exactly how they put it, but it is definitely like a side effect in the book, not a pro, you know, not a planned end result. Oh, so in the book, at least, and from away in the movie too, it seems that it was, as you said, a side effect. It was not intended, even though maybe it's put out there as it was intended, but really it wasn't, because Bryant really seems to think it was a safeguard, because as they get their memories, they would start to develop emotions and. I guess the theory is as they develop emotions, they become more, more yeah. human, less than less than tools, if you will. I guess. And based on their purpose, I mean, you know, some of them were bred to be, you know, violent or more physical or to perform a function that or a basic uh, pleasure a, model. Yeah, yeah exactly. That could be. Yeah, yeah. I'll that take could be two, a danger. Please. Yeah, take two. Um, that could be a danger. So I think that you know, again, to 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 stave off the whole you know, revolt or whatever. But, yeah, I got the impression that they could control that. Um, my understanding was, or the way I saw it was, just like with, with Rachel being, you know, not having that, that lifespan, that based on the way they do the cloning or whatever it is they do, they can program into their to their makeup, you know, whether they live four years, six years, ten years, you know, live a, you know, a hundred years or whatever, that it wasn't like a, a like a, something that was accidental or something that was a defect. I, I, I took it as something that was deliberate. Do they have the, um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing the book and, and two cuts of the movie right now. Um, when Roy sticks the nail through his hand, is that in the theatrical as well? Yes. It's funny how they, um, you know, again, it could be like maybe the model, like different models have different um, abilities or, or, or whatever, but you know, like um, Pris sticks her hand in the boiling water and like pulls out the eggs, and she has no pain, you know, at all. She shows no pain, I should say. But then you have Roy yeah. like screaming, you know, and sticking a nail through his hand, and you know that the chase with Roy is is kind of important to me because he's doing a lot of very human. He's going through a lot of very human emotions, like you know, the hooting and the hollering, and, and he's showing, like, real feeling at that point. Whereas earlier, you know, she's sticking her hand in scalding hot water and doesn't feel anything. So it's almost like, are they different, or is he kind of evolving? I think it goes back to he's he's closest to death, uh, to a natural death, if you will. You know, whereas she is probably, you know, a much newer model, or at least, at least not as as worn down or worn out, so she can... And take it more. So he's weakening. You you take it out. Yeah, that's why I took it. I mean, the whole nail in his hand was because his hand. Then we saw like the first time we met him, his his hand was cramping up and starting to fail him already. You know, and that was more of a reaction so he can keep going. Right. Yeah. It, I thought that was a pretty cool. You know, I guess a directorial or editorial choice or sound choice or whatever. But whenever she went, 
you know, that thing was boiling with the eggs in it the whole time they were in, in that, you know, in that scene. But yet only when they were trying to ratchet up that tension, do you hear that boiling? It just gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And then she sticks her hand in there and pulls the egg out and tosses to him and he, you know, it's hot and then it kind of quiets down. I think it's just and then when much, Roy kind of, as I said, it's just as much as she got closer to it and approached it. You know, yeah. It, it, we heard it as, as they, as she was hearing it more, maybe. Yeah. Well, and then when Roy kind of gets in JF's face, like right before he does the thing with the eyes and the, the, the you know the, the top teeth and stuff, when he kind of gets close to him and starts putting the pressure on him, you hear that boiling in the background again. It starts to build, you know, and it starts to get louder and louder, and that tension just ratchets up, and he's not sure what's going to happen. I just I just thought that was a really cool, you know, film moment. It just seems, uh, you know, like they they're pushing all the buttons with the viewer because uh, to look at uh, what's the Clockwork Orange, a little of the old good old fashioned ultra violence. You know? You know, um, they definitely dialed it up um, at the right cues. You know, so I'll give it to Scott for that one. Just like when when Kubrick did it to talk about that earlier, and um, you know, the composition's pretty intense too. You know, with all the writhing in the pain like that. But uh, you know, <laughs> you are not not you know whether it's the day that Earth still or whatever other iteration of cloning or robots or cyborgs or whatever, be it galactic. Terminator, uh, humans, human, and not human is not human. You know. One of the things that I, that I, I and you know, John, you're a big Alien fan as well. But that whole when the scene when when they're when the chase is on and uh, right before Roy reaches his hand through to grab a hold of uh, Deckard's hand and pull the you know pull the gun through, but he's kind of up against that wall and you see that water dripping down the wall and it, you can just kind of see it running. It just, it, it so reminded me of alien, you know, with either the, you know, the alien when it opens its jaw and you kind of see that, right. you know, the, the drip or, you know, the pipes and, you know, all that. You, it just, it, it just totally like he pulled that straight out of alien, you know, and just, I, I just thought that was a well done scene. Again, you have Harrison Ford cast as the, as the Deckard character and it's, it's just a physical role, you know, the whole chase and the fingers being broken and, you know the in the in the you know the actual physical violence, and I, I think Harrison Ford, especially you know back at that time, just did that so well. Just his his facial expressions and the emotion and and everything else is just is just in my mind makes him such a such a fabulous actor. I mean that whole that whole exchange he did with Brian James as uh, Leon in the be- you know in the beginning where you know, he grabs him and you know he goes he goes Leon and then you know boom he punches him and and then he you know he he goes when you know. What did he say? Did he ask him what his inception date was? And he goes, I don't know. And then, boom, he punches him back and just that whole, that whole exchange. And then when Zora, you know, kind of blindsides him, um, you know, gut, gut punches him and, you know, the, the, again, his, his mannerisms and his, uh, you know, the, the sound and everything else when she kind of grabs him up by his tie and strangles him. And I, I just think, you know, looking back on it, it just seems like a perfect casting choice. For the, the um, the scene where he shoots Pris, that that so reminds me of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when the guy's twirling the knives and he just shoots him and Pris is like doing these cartwheels across the room and he just, <laughs> just pulls out the gun and blasts her twice in the gut. Yeah, yeah. That gun can be yours, you know. It may cost you a couple hundred grand, but, but you can buy it. Take two. <laughs> two. Two guns and two pleasure models. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> so, what'd you guys think of Roy 
letting him go, you know, in terms of the scheme of the storytelling. Actually, I think it goes a lot to uh, Roy's, not his character, but his sense of the moment. He knows he's going to die, and especially when he starts talking about, you know, his life and his regrets. I mean, basically, he has these memories, these these moments that he, he, he are going to be lost. He's going to die, he's going to be lost, and there's nothing to be gained by um, by Decker's death. So he, he saves his life, bring him, brings him up, you know, they have those his little revelation and he dies. So, so when I, when I'm see, watching this and, and that, that's what I saw that I just saw this guy, you know, he realizes his fight's over. He's not going to die anymore. No one else needs to die for, for him to live. Uh, and, and so we, so he goes, it was, I, I, I guess that's the part of the movie I struggle with the most and just have go back and forth and have so many opinions about, because in some ways it just seems so strange because here's a character that, you know, has basically murdered and mutilated and killed and done all these horrible things and spends the previous 15 minutes, 20 minutes, chasing after this guy to kill him. And then he gets to that moment and then he doesn't. And it, it's, it's so strange. But then again, the, the one thing that really makes me understand it better is when, is when Deckard is, is on that beam and he's hanging on by, you know, his fingernails and, and Batty's looking at him and says, uh, how is it like to, you know, live in fear? And then he tells him that's, you know, that's what it's like to be a slave. And it's almost like Batty's telling him at that moment, it's like, I'm going to, you know, and then, and then of course, Deckard slips and he grabs him and pulls him up. It, it's almost like Batty saying, I'm going to let you live so you can, you know, now that you understand how we lived. You know, we were basically slaves and treated as such and given these short lifespans and, you know, used and abused. You know, just like you, you know, you're you're sitting at the at the precipice, helpless, being ordered around by your masters, and you know, without any you know any any self direction or self will, and you know, now I'm going to pull you, I'm going to pull you from the brink so you can you can fully understand, you know, what it's like to be one of us. Do you think that was kind of like in trap because uh, you know before Roy started the whole cat uh, chase sequence? Do you know, like? Um, was that like his intention to prove the, that point to Deckard or was he kind of like as resourceful as he, as he is kind of like acting in the moment and he saw that opportunity to take with Deckard or were his plans kind of like a little less sinister than that? I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, and I guess I think, I think it's more in the moment. I think it, you know, just at that point in time, that's what he saw. Or at that point in time, he fully realized, you know, he's at the end. You know, there's not much left. And maybe it was more important at that point in time for him to bring Deckard up as well to, to, for him to confess. You know, basically, if Deckard, if Deckard falls and Roy dies right then and there, there's no one to hear him say, you know, that he has any regrets or the things that he's seen or how he feels. It's just all, you know, like you said, it's, you know, they're, they're just like, you know, tears in the rain. You know, it's just, it's all gone. Right. I think that's, uh, that's what, that's how I feel about it. I think you just hit it on the head. That speech about the tears in the rain, to me, that whole scene was, Roy knows he's going to die. If he kills Deckard, this whole moment is as good as, like, it never happened. You know, leaving Deckard alive he lets him tell the story or at least know the truth about what happened and that Roy let him go. You know, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
and then there's the, you know, I guess if you go ultra simplistic, it could be in that moment too that Roy knew he was a replicant and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to kill one of my own. Another possibility. But, you know, the, the ending is what almost leans me to more not believe that, that Deckard's a replicant because of he doesn't appear to have the super strength like the rest of them do. He, did, you know, he feels pain and he, you know, he bleeds and he, you know, has, you know, these, you know, typical responses of somebody that's taken that kind of abuse. So it's kind of, you know, that, I guess that's the one, you know, contradiction for me that, that, that leans me the other way. Or, or he is, in fact, a, a, either an older model or not a model made for, you know, extreme conditions, you know, nuclear loader, combat, you know, things like that. He's, he's sure. meant to be a, a human replacement, you know, from a previous, like I said, a previous generation, doesn't have the, uh, the lifespan issue, doesn't have the uh, enhanced abilities, if you will. In fact, if the whole idea of, you know, that which burns brighter burns out fastest you know, holds true, if he's just, you know, functioning at a normal human level, well, he'll have a, a longer lifespan at the very least. True, true. It, it's interesting too when you you know when you think about it if you you know if you move if you go with the notion that Deckard is a replicant and that's you know and you you if that's what you believe and that's what you take out of it then it, it really is so ironic because at the beginning you know where he where Tyrell says well she doesn't know she doesn't know she's a replicant and his whole comment is how does it not know what it is and then here you have you know somebody saying that that doesn't he doesn't know what he is obviously. And then he talks about replicants being, you know, emotional attachment and, you know, Leon having the pictures and Rachel having the picture. And yet when you look in his house, he's surrounded by photos. I mean, there's photos on the piano. There's, there's photos everywhere. And he's, he's kind of got this fascination with photos as well and memories and, you know, the past and, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it was, I thought it's an interesting um, irony there. One of the other things I, I was going to, I was going to mention and get your guys' opinion on this as well is, this was like the first movie I noticed that had such blatant product placement. You know, I I never noticed in a in a movie because it seems like they always obscure the brand or you know maybe you'll see one or two things in particular. But you know nowadays it's getting more commonplace. You know that you know they 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 squeeze some in there. I think this one maybe in this movie not as blatant, but just more to just kind of set as part of the environment the over commercialization or the or the corporatization of of the, uh, you know, what's left of the world. But it, I started kind of making notes on, on the brands that are kind of out there and around. And I, I've got Cuisinart, Coca-Cola, Atari, TDK, and Jovan Musk. Well, there's, a, have- there's a few more in there. And what's, what's funny is there's a whole running theory of, of the Blade Runner curse because yeah. most, if not all, of those brands are have either been hurt or are no longer around. I mean, of course, Atari has been... You know, bought and sold so many times. Um, the, the Bell telephone system is was broken up into regional operators, and then came back became AT and T. Pam Am is uh, you know they had you know, the terrorist bombings, destructions. They had uh, hijackings, and of course they were bankrupt. Uh, Coke had uh, had new Coke a couple years later, but yeah. they're still thriving along with Budweiser and TDK. So um, yeah, the whole idea of the uh, Cuisinart is went bankrupt in '89. There's a few. There's a few of them, and. Um, uh, so the Blade Runner curse is uh, is out is out there. If, you've, if a prog was in Blade Runner, uh, chances are they had some problems. Yeah, I was I just thought that was funny, but you know, the, it it just seemed so odd. You know, just so obvious when you're watching it, which at the time just seemed out of place. You know, now I don't think we've noticed it as much, 
because it seems like it, like I said, it's being more and more common, and you know, folks are pointing it out more and more as you know, blatant product placement. But um, this is kind of an early example of this, I guess. So overall, what did you, you know, what what do you guys think? I, I guess out of out of five, what do you what do you give it? Um, I guess I'll start. I mean, to me, it's like pretty close to science fiction heaven. I mean, I'm I'm a solid four and a half. I mean. I, I won't give it a five. It's not my favorite movie of all time, but it's it's right in there, and and it's part of the full experience. I I love all the different cuts. I love the book. I love you know reading about everything that's gone on with it and and such. So for the whole experience, I just love it. I'll uh, chime in here. I'd say I'd give it a four. I mean, it's a lot again. Certainly, uh, <laughs> I can see how like repeat can definitely help things. I definitely thought a lot of things that you guys had mentioned, but uh, you know. With uh, age experience, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really experienced with it, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was neat. Now that it's attained cult status, like Dune or the Rocky Horror Picture Show, does Blade Runner have? I mean, aside from like geek cred in the film industry, do people look to Blade Runner aside from inspiration as like any like cinematic like big achievement or 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 anything otherwise? Is it just kind of uh, seen as? while that great science fiction movie came out in 82. Because I'm not really sure if I understand, like, and this kind of ties into the cult, and it's, is it a great one? Other than for the elements. Well, it definitely won some awards. Um, its Academy Awards stuff was mostly for the art direction and the uh, visual effects. I don't know what the B-A-F-T-A awards are. British Academy. There you Film go. Television. Okay, so British Academy gave it best editing, best makeup, best score, best sound, best visual effects. Best noodles. It got Saturn Awards for best science fiction film, best director, best special effects, best supporting actor, best genre, genre video release in 94 for the director's cut. So it's definitely, um, hold on, I have the AFI Top 100... Um, it's in Time's 100 All-Time Best Movies, currently ranked as the third best all-time film by the Screen Directory. So it's certainly gotten some acclaim on a on a uh, mass level. Yeah, I think the AFI put it in their top ten. They're doing their top ten top tens, and it's it's in the top ten science fiction films of all time. So it's, I think it's one of those movies, it's almost like a fine wine. It, it improves over time. I think people's opinion of it, um, as time goes by, improve and get better. But I, I think, again, there's after this movie, there were so many things and that when people watched film, they they looked and were like, oh, that's a Blade Runner moment. Oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's not a Blade Runner, either in theme or mood or the way the future was depicted. So I, I think, I think, a lot of movies that came after and, and a lot of the things of this genre have a lot to owe to, to Blade Runner. I'll throw mine out there. I'll, I gave it a, I'm going to give it a four as well. Um, I like movies where I can go in and get something new out of it every time. And just our discussion today, um, I've got a lot more stuff to look forward look for in, the, in the, my next viewing of it. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going for a four. I give it, um, I give it a five. The, to me, I, I, don't, I think it's maybe not in my top ten, but it's definitely in my top, say, 15 movies of all time. I just, I, I've seen it probably a dozen times if I've seen it once. I've seen it at the theater twice. I saw the director's cut and the final cut um, at the theater. And, you know, I, I just, for years and years, this is one of those that 
people clamored for on DVD because the only version we got was when, in 97, it was like one of the first DVDs released, and it was the director's cut, but it was like non-anamorphic, didn't have any extras, no features. The, 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 it was basically a laser disc port of the uh, director's cut, so the, the, film qual- the quality itself was kind of poor. It wasn't cleaned up. And it was one of those that was rumored forever. I mean, years and years and years had been rumored to be coming. You know, oh, it's going to be a three-disc set. Oh, it's coming, it's coming. And I think not until Blu-ray, you know, the 25th anniversary. It wasn't pretty much till 2007 when, you know, everything got in alignment and Ridley Scott was brought in and had full control that they were able to pull off the final cut. And to me, that's just, the final cut is the is the everything that it should have been in the beginning to, to me. So, like I said, this is definitely a... a close top 10, if not top 15, um, all time for me. So that leaves the, the documentary. I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch the, the almost four hour documentary dangerous days. That's on the, on the latest release. No, I, I have not no, watched I've, it now. I've kind of seen parts of it here and there, but I've never sat down for the full blown four hours. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And the cool thing is it, it's broken up into like six pieces of, there are about seven pieces that are like 30 minutes each. So, you know, it's one of those where it has nice, even break points. So you don't, you don't have to feel like, Oh, you're, you got to sit down and, and, and talk about it all at once. But it, it really goes, it, it's extremely candid, which is awesome because everybody speaks their mind. There's none of this like, Oh, it's kind of a studio piece. So everybody talks about how great everything was. It's very candid. It starts out at the very beginning with, um, they interview Hampton Fancher, who did the original script treatment in the late 70s and early 80s, and how he got frustrated and how, you know, him and Ridley got into it a lot and, you know, how he, you know, basically got fired off the, off the flick and they brought in David Peoples to, to, to work on the script. And then Fancher came back and realized that, you know, it really was, you know, that people's additions and changes to the script really improved it and him and Ridley started to get along better. But it goes into the casting process and how, um, originally it was Dustin Hoffman, um, that they thought was going to be cast as the Deckard character. And they talked to him for apparently months and had many, many meetings with him to, to go over the role. And finally he just created princes Hoffman did and just decided to pass on it. Um, and it was Spielberg that recommended Deckard or, um, Harrison Ford for the, for the Deckard role. And then they talked, they talked to each one of the, the actors about, you know, the casting process and everything else. And then they get into the filming, and it's really interesting because this is the first time for this documentary that, that documentary that I've ever heard Harrison Ford talk about Blade Runner or talk about it in, in, in even any kind of a positive note. I mean, for years and years and years, when people tried to interview him and they bring it up, he would just like get kind of you know standoffish with him and just kind of like pass, you know, move on. Didn't want to talk about it. Wasn't a, you know one of his more fun experiences. And that really comes out in the interview. They actually got Harrison Ford to sit down, and not as much as the others, but they did get to interview him, and he was brutally honest. I mean, his, his, uh, his, his big quote for the filming process was, and they, they, they put this in the trailer for the, for, the, for the thing, is he goes, it was a bitch. That, you know, that, that was his big quote, and, and it kind of goes from there, and it, and it talks about, like I said, how everybody, it was just a grueling process. It was all filmed at night. It was all, you know, rainy and dreary and, you know, you know, Ridley Scott's kind of a perfectionist and it really goes into how, you know, he, you know, kind of ruled the roost and he wanted it done his way and he didn't care how many takes it took and 
you know, who to do, you know, what. And then they talk about, you know, again, how filming went behind and they started, got, they got pressured and, you know, it, which led to some of the inconsistencies that you see in the, in the film where, you know, even one of the things in the theatrical cut, you'll see one of the spinners early on, um, when it takes off, you can see the, the wires on it. And that was one of the things in the final cut that they were able to clean up. Um, and then again, like I said, those two scenes I mentioned earlier with the voiceover with Ben Ford, Harrison Ford's son, and the reshooting with Joanna Cassidy, who was all, and they talk about that process and how she was totally on board with it. She was never happy with it from the beginning, and she was glad to come back, you know, 25 years later and, and do it. But yeah, it's just it, it's it's the best film documentary I think I've ever seen, and I, I I'm I'm a film nut. I love sometimes the making of movies more so than the actual movies. I like all the behind the scenes and what really happened and how they did this and that. And I've seen like the Hearts of Darkness. I don't know if you guys seen Hearts of Darkness, the documentary that Francis Ford Coppola's wife did while making um, Apocalypse Now. And uh, yep. it's kind of it's kind of it's somewhat candid as well. Not I, I think not as uh, not as honest as this one is, but but a little candid. This one, like I said, it's just very candid, and and Ridley's not afraid to speak his mind either and say how you know he felt at the time, and you know you know understanding that people you know had a negative opinion or were you know unhappy or grumpy or you know whatever whatever the case was, and you know they talk a lot about Harrison Ford pretty much kind of kept to himself, and they could tell he wasn't real happy with it, and Harrison talks about the narration, and you know kind of like John was mentioning earlier and how. Never liked it, never wanted to do it, and pretty much just did it because he was contracted to do it and just kind of phoned it in. So it's just, I, like I said, I can't recommend it enough. It just really, it, it just, it covers all aspects of the movie. And it's interesting because it's all fresh material. It's all new. It's not a bunch of um, rehashed stuff clipped together. It's all, it's all brand new interviews that they conducted in 07 specifically for the documentary. Good stuff. Great stuff. Anybody else have any closing thoughts? Um, just that I heard that recently the talk of a sequel kind of cropped up again, I think, at a con. Yeah, that was, like I said, I was at, um, in 07, I was at Comic-Con right before this released. And at, at the panel, it was a really, really awesome panel because it had, um, it was Ridley Scott and it was uh, Joanna Cassidy, Sean Young, James Hong, who, who played the, the eye guy, um, Chu, and... Uh, Rutger wasn't there, and I think Daryl Hannah was there as well, if I'm not mistaken. And again, they, you know, when they talked about, you know, took a bunch of uh, audience questions and stuff, that was one of them that came up as a sequel. And that, that kind of what spurred the whole conversation of what Ridley's opinion was as whether Deckard was a replicant, and of course he said yes, but he did say he, you know, he wouldn't rule out a sequel, and he'd love to be able to, you know, to come back to it and, and make it work if it was possible. Just like Alien, you know, same thing. He'd love to go back and, you know, find a way to do another Alien flick. It also seems that uh, directors like Ridley Scott and James Cameron have really, uh, you know, since their groundbreaking, I don't know if that's a good word, uh, 80s works that were really, you know, still be considered, uh, let's say, modern classics now, seem to have delved into the area of not just filming, but improving filmmaking. Like you could say this, that about like James Cameron with his work with uh, 3D cameras and angles and lenses and stuff like that. So and I'd, I'd put uh, Ridley Scott in the same category, too. The immense, you know, prep work that went into GI for, you know, films like Gladiator, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, they, they talk about that, you know, too, in the, in the documentary as well, where he had the set 
set up a certain way and they had these floors like highly polished and he comes in there and you know, they're right about the film and he wants the columns turned upside down. You know, it's the big, it, it, the scene with the um, interrogation when, when Deckard goes and does the void comp on, um, on Rachel, that whole big area there, he wanted all the columns turned upside down. And they, you know, talk about the, the crew guy, you know, how they had to go and put stuff on the floor because they couldn't scuff the floor up and they'd spend hours polishing it. And that's one of the things they talk about is when Ridley sees something a certain way, that's just the way he sees it. And that's the way he wants it. You know, they, this was Ridley Scott's first American movie. This is the first one he came to America to film. Um, all the other stuff he'd done, commercials and Alien and, and the stuff prior, had all been done in England. So there was, you know, they talk about a lot of the differences between, you know, the American crews and the, and the British crews and, and, and stuff like that, too. So, so yeah, I think overall, he, he's one of those directors, I think, where it's hard to find a bad movie he's done. Um, you know, every director has them, but, you know, overall... I think his his style and his attention to detail and everything else just just really make a great movie. He makes a good commercial too. That Macintosh commercial <laughs> he did a couple years later after this movie was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> just a little shout out to Bill McGonnell, Mister uh, Dune fan. Is Blade Runner was almost not to be as we know it because Ridley Scott was all lined up, sets built. Um, ready to start filming. He was going to film Dune. Um, he was the first choice. And uh, like I said, they had, they had set, sets built and things ready to roll. And his older brother passed away right around that time. And the movie kept stalling out and stalling out. And that's he finally ditched it um, and said yes to Blade Runner after passing on it the first time to do Dune. So, Bill, you never know what might have been. All righty, fellas. Anything else? I think we tore it up pretty good. That we did. I'm happy that the dudes got to uh, stick their toes in the movie pool a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I still call this our first real, you know, movie, you know, movie-centric episode. I know we did Watchmen after the theatrical release, but um, after doing the book for so long, I think you know some of the stuff there was a little obvious. So this was a lot of fun to be able to just go back on, uh, you know, on one of my favorites and to be able to to pick it apart and watch it from different views and and get everybody else's take on it as well. Well, I guess if nobody has anything else, we will sign off for this week. Again, thank everybody for listening. You can check us out at, of course, www.legionofdudes.com. Check out our features, our audio blogs, our episode content, everything there all in one place. Links to the forum at thecomicforums.com. Please feel free to leave us a note, send us an email. Um, you can always call the voicemail. The numbers on the on the site as well. Make and sure Dan from San Antonio, we're we're getting to the voicemails soon. We'll have a yeah. a nice uh, w- when we do these kind of pointed shows that we we you know we're we're uh, specific about a certain topic. We're not exactly sure where to throw in our general voicemails, but we'll get around to them soon. And we thank you for leaving them. Yeah, always thank everybody for their comments. Uh, we next week will be Kingdom Come issue four. And we'll have a lot of um, follow-up comments from Issue 3 and um, Prelude stuff for Issue 4 that we'll be shouting out to. I want to give a couple quick shout-outs. One to, of course, the Steel City Con uh, coming up where the Legion of Dudes will be in effect. Mr. Jim Dietz will be, uh, will be there. Um, have the trivia contest and um, all kinds of goodies available at the con. So, you know, make sure to stop by and check us out. also want to give a shout-out to a con that they're trying to build up in Houston called Comic Palooza. 
And that's going to be on Free Comic Book Day in Houston. If you're familiar for the, any of those folks in Texas, it's over on the kind of the west side of town in the West Oaks Mall area. Um, a shop called Midnight Comics is going to be is, is kind of putting it on. They hope to have a lot of dealers, a lot of cool guests showing up. Len Wein is, um, is slated to be one of the guests um, for Comic Palooza. So you can check that out at www.comicpalooza.com. We want to make sure everybody checks out www.cheapastrades.com. Just like it sounds, it's kind of become my new addiction. I know a couple of the guys have been checking it out. Lots and lots of cheap stuff on there, just like the name says. You can pretty much search anything, and it'll tell you where to find the cheapest deals on all the trades that are out there. Check it daily. Check it often. Prices fluctuate and change constantly. I've ordered several things off of it already, and I, I kind of have to exhibit self-control because they're just there's so much really good stuff at cheap, cheap prices out there. So, yeah, give them a try. Cheapastrades.com. Yeah, it's definitely addicting. I think John's those ordered bargains. Every, yeah, I think John's <laughs> over, ordered every Wolverine trade on on the list uh, from cheap ass trades. Uh, not every, but a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that wraps it up for for today. Um, Want to again thank everybody for listening, and we will catch you next week with Kingdom Come issue four, the big finale. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Who does? Does!